welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. Um, and so that's where we are in our Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, uh, there's one in the seat in front of you. I would love for you to open that and have it before you this morning. Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 32 uh, to the end of the chapter. I think you would agree with this, that uh, sometimes it's hard to see what the Lord is doing in somebody's life. And so for that matter, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to see what uh, God is doing in our own life, what He's doing in our own heart. I often uh, think of uh, one of my favorite hymns of all time. Um, we, we sing it pretty often around here. There is a fountain filled with blood. It was written by a man named William Cooper. Uh, he's regarded as one of the best uh, early romantic poets. Um, to biographers, uh, William C- Cooper is also known as Mad Cooper uh, because his literary talents produced some of the finest, finest English hymn text, but he was also prone to conic chronic depression. Cowper ended up several times in, uh, in, in institutions that helped him deal with that. He was suicidal multiple times. He was educated as an attorney. Um, he was called uh, to the bar in 1754, but he never practiced law. In 1763, he had an opportunity to become the clerk in the House of the Lords, but the dread of the required public examination triggered his anxiety and his tendency to press, the, his tendency towards depression was magnified to the, to the point where he attempted suicide several times. But uh, the Lord spared his life. This might be what is described for many of us as early church uh, folks described as a, as a dark night of the soul. But in those times, the Lord birthed in Cooper's um, heart, a song, uh, there is a fountain filled with blood. Listen to some of this lyrics. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And so, and so imagine someone going through this darkness and he says, and sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilt and stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, though vile as he, have all my sins washed away. He goes on to say, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Now, why do I tell you that story? I tell you that because there's sometimes in our in our lives where God births these these songs, this great excitement in our hearts, even going through deep, dark times. In these dark nights of the soul, the Lord birthed this song in his heart that he had such rich assurance that the precious blood of Jesus Christ still had power for even sinners such as him. You can probably identify with that. Some of you may be going through a dark time right there and you're just wondering what the Lord is teaching you. Sometimes it's through victorious times that the Lord is teaching us something. And sometimes it's through those victorious times that it's even harder for us to see what the Lord is teaching us because sometimes during those victorious times is when we tend to get our eyes off of Christ. I I, I remember uh, growing up um, and coming to school here in sixth grade, uh, Miss Linda Knowles gave us a field day because we had done something together as a class. We got all of our work done or something or the other. And so we're going to have a field day right out here on this blacktop. It used to be striped with basketball courts and things like that. It was before lunchtime that the whole class had got into a verbal brouhaha because 
we were not winning the game and we thought the other team was cheating and we got in this big brouhaha, so much so, teachers can probably relate, that she was so frustrated with the class that she marched us inside and gave us an assignment to write a, an essay, a one-page essay of what it means to be a good sport. And so I wrote an essay of what it means to be a good sport. We sat down that night. We didn't finish it in class. It was for homework. She gave us homework on our field day, if you can imagine. And so I went home to write it that night. I remember seeing it still hanging in my son's room today, a little sign that says, the problem with being a good sport is that you have to lose to prove it. And sometimes we don't want that. We don't want to have to experience that loss in order to prove that we are a good sport. We want to prove that we are a good sport because we hit a grand slam in the bottom of the ninth with a full count with two outs. That's what we want to show we are a good, good sport. Well, Peter experiences something in Acts chapter 9 that is not so much like what Cooper experienced but it's kind of like hitting a grand slam in the bottom of the ninth with, with two outs. That he experiences these great victorious times. But, but I, I want to warn you, wherever you are, are at between those two things, I, I want to go ahead and ask you the question, are you in tune of what God is doing? And sometimes in those dark nights, we just figure God is just out of it. He's not doing anything. Sometimes in those victorious times, we don't even care what God is doing because Things are good. Things are going well. In Peter's life, God is doing some pretty big things through him. You heard it already. The bedridden are walking. The dead are rising. We're going to see next week in chapter 10, he gets this wonderful vision from heaven. Yes, God was at work using Peter. But, but something I want you to see this morning, even in this victorious moment, God was doing a lot of work in the heart of Peter. And so go ahead and ask yourself the question. I don't know where you are in that spectrum this morning, but, but maybe start asking yourself a question. What is God doing in my heart this, this morning? What is he doing in the life of the church? Let's go ahead and take a look. The first thing that Peter experiences is that the gospel is going here, there, and everywhere. The gospel is expanding geographically. You see that in verse 32. Let's read it again. Look in your Bibles. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydia. Now, I want you to know something about this section. You, you might notice something because last week we're starting, we're talking about the Apostle Paul. And now as Luke records Acts, we're transitioning back to the work of Peter, what God's doing in the life of the Apostle Peter. And so he begins to introduce us back to Peter. Paul kind of goes off the radar for a little bit. He's away for three years in Arabia. We don't hear much about him uh, for about five to seven years or so until Barnabas, we'll see, goes up to get him uh, at Tarsus and brings him back uh, to Antioch. And, but for now, we don't hear much about Paul. So, so Luke shifts his focus back uh, to Peter. And as he shifts his back, his, his back to Peter, he's, he's not giving us these these verses uh, just as a transition in the script. And, and God is not working in your life right now just as a transition in the script of wherever he's bringing you. Even in those transitions, he's doing something with you. He's always after making us more like himself. That's, that's his work. That's the work of the Spirit. 
And so Noah, as, as he goes through this, this transition, we're not just transitioning as a script in the story from one scene to the next. We're really seeing what God is doing. And so, so God brings them, do you see it, here and there, among them all. He's moving now to these coastal cities. It's likely, some scholars tell us, that Philip evangelized these areas, these areas of, of Lydda and Sharon and, and Joppa and all these coastal cities and, and, and so as Peter moves to these cities, he's, he's finding saints there. Like the gospel is taking root. And there are Christians there. There are, are churches there. There are fellowships there. And there are saints in these towns. So, so imagine this, this feeling of, of joy as Peter goes to these places. That Yeah, perhaps Philip has come through and evangelized these places. The gospel's taking root there. I don't know if you've ever been on a mission trip or something and, and you think the gospel is just dead in a region and, and then you go and you find on fire Christians there and it really excites you. It's like hitting a home run in the bottom of the ninth with two outs, full counts to win the game. The gospel is taking root in these coastal cities. It's moving geographically here and there and among them all. The Lord is using these victories to prepare Peter's heart for an even greater movement of the Holy Spirit among the Gentiles. These stories, and even the story of your life, is hardly filler. They're turning us back to Peter, but it's beginning to show us what God is up to. So point number one, as, as Peter experiences all these joyous times, that, that the gospel is moving to here and there and everywhere to all of these places. But point number two, notice this. Not only is the gospel moving to all of these places, the gospel is not moving just geographically. The gospel is moving as far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, as far as sickness and death have infested this world uh, with its thorniness, the gospel is moving not just geographically, the gospel is not just moving to places, the gospel is moving to people in those places. And he shows us this in two miracles, one of Aeneas and one of a woman, Tabitha, which in English, unfortunately, translates into Dorcas. And so the first one that we see as the gospel not only moves to places, it moves to people, not just geographically, but as far as the curse is found, we see Peter experiencing this. Look at verse 33. And so he goes to this coastal town, and there he found a man named Aeneas. He was bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. So, so let's just stop there for a minute. We talked about this earlier in Acts with the, with the guy who was uh, collecting alms at the, at the gate called Beautiful. If, if you were paralyzed in those days, you were hopeless. You, you were hopeless that you, you would ever not be dependent upon someone else ever again. There was no way to make a living for yourself. Uh, there was no way to survive unless someone helped you each and every day. Uh, there was no place going but this bed that you would lay on, and you were relying on people's charity, not only with their time, but with their treasure, so that you could just survive. He was bedridden for eight years now. 
He probably thought that this, this would never end. There was no reason for him to think that there would ever be a break until the Lord would take him home. He was completely helpless, completely dependent, and likely completely hopeless, at least hopeless, that he would ever walk again. So Peter comes along and he says, Aeneas, not I heal you. Jesus Christ heals you. And what he's saying is at this moment, in this time, in this very moment, Jesus says, get up. You're healed. Rise. And what we fuss at our kids all the time, make your bed. You can tell your kids that's biblical. Peter said it. Make your bed. You don't need it anymore. For Jesus Christ heals you. Eight years of hopelessness. Eight years of atrophy. Can you imagine laying down? I'm not too old yet, but even at my age, if I sit for too long, my knees get tight, my back gets tight, I kind of get stiff. You got to keep moving. Eight years in bed. God raises him up. Atrophy. Gone. Walking. Is now happening. The Spirit directed Peter to this man and to these moment to say these words and immediately he rose look at verse 35 and all the residents what's the result the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord Peter wasn't after himself in the next chapter they try to bow down to Peter and worship him and he says get up it's it's not about me This is about the power of the resurrected Christ that the precious blood of Jesus Christ shall never lose its power. And the power of Christ is moving throughout this region. As a result of the miracle, they didn't just say, wow, miracles are cool. They knew that Jesus Christ had done it. Jesus had healed him. Jesus had raised him up. And people... In this coastal town, this is a Gentile area, by the way, all residents. That doesn't mean everybody there, but all without exception in the sense that all kinds of people, not just a homogenous few, but all kinds of people were believing the gospel was moving. Imagine the feeling of joy that Peter walks into this town, this lame man gets up, and even more people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They don't just turn away. They say, yes, we will follow Christ. You see, the church is not just extending geographically. The church is extending ethnically. The Gentiles we are seeing, are being included in the kingdom. The Gentiles that would once be considered unclean are coming into the kingdom. And Peter was a devout Jew. We'll see that in chapter 10. And we know that God, in these, even this moment of victory, if Peter's not paying attention, this is one thing that God is doing in his own heart. It's helping him to see this tendency that can often creep into our own hearts unannounced and uncovered. We can start believing that certain kinds of people or even people in certain parts of the world will never be true members of the church. That God would never pour out a spirit there. Do you know what kind of evil people they are? We can discriminate based on age, appearance, affluence, achievements. We do believe the gospel is for us, but do we believe the gospel is for everyone? Or we believe the gospel is for everyone 
but we love our corner of the kingdom to be homogenous. Now, some of that's hard for us because we live in a very homogenous region. River Ridge is a bit homogenous. But we need to know that the gospel is spreading to the, to the nations. And the gospel spreading to the nations was a difficult concept for Jewish folks, even though God had promised it. Would they ever be fully included in the kingdom if they did not grow up like us or look like us or once keep the law like us? Would Christianity be a Jewish sect or was it the way? And sometimes when God is doing great things in our life, they can be neutralized by our attitudes or our just coldness to what God is doing, not even paying attention when he's doing wonderful things among us. All of this taken together was beginning to have, we're going to see, you don't see it yet, but we're going to see it later in the text, a softening effect on Peter's prejudice. He was doing Christ's work away from Jerusalem in the midst of the filing grit of Gentile culture. And God was moving among not just the churches that were planted there, the saints there, but even other people in those Gentile territories were coming to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. His precious blood never loses its power. And there's another miracle. Not only are the lame walking, look at verse 36, the dead are raised. Listen to this story again. Now there was in Joppa, let's stop there. Do you remember Joppa? If you came to Secret Church, I didn't come to Secret Church on Friday, but some of you did. You went through uh, the book of Jonah. When Jonah was fleeing the call of God, anywhere but Nineveh. Those people will not receive the gospel. They will, they're evil. They're, they'll kill me. They are not good enough for the gospel. I'm not going to tell them about the God of Israel. I will go anywhere than there. So he got a ticket from Tarshish, and he went out of Joppa. That was the place where he made the decision that the gospel would not go to the Ninevites. Would it happen again? God turned Jonah around, by the way, and much to his chagrin, the, <laughs> the good news of God came to the to Gentiles, to the Ninevites. What would happen with Peter? There's in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. She became ill and died, and they washed her, and they laid her in an upper room. And Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples, hearing that Peter was, was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter went with them, and he arrived. They took him to the upper room. That's where she was laying. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. You see, these disciples knew that Peter was here, and they weren't calling him to do a funeral. You see this, right? They had washed Dorcas and put her in an upper room. They had not buried her yet. And so this wasn't like this famous preacher was a couple towns over. We saw, some of you remember Charles Stanley. He passed away this week. We used to watch him on TV before we came to church on Sunday morning and things like that. This is not like this famous preacher like Charles Stanley's a town over and our friend just died. Maybe he would come to the funeral, have like this famous preacher come to the funeral. That's not what's going on. Uh, they know the, the power that God's displaying through Peter. And they're thinking, 
Much like when Jesus came to his friend Lazarus, if we can get Peter to come, perhaps there's hope for Dorcas. Because do you feel that moment? It's a moving scene. We notice that, that Dorcas Tabitha is this woman of faith, that good works sprung from her faith, that she took care of widows and orphans, as, as, as the Bible says, and, and left her un, herself unstained by the world. She, she was living true religion. And so imagine the scene. They're, they're weeping, they're crying, and they, we, we don't know how old Dorcas was, Tabitha was, and they're remembering her. They're, so Peter comes in, and they're showing her these, tu, these tunics. She, she made this for me. Like, I didn't have anything to wear, and, and she stepped in and she made this for me so that I would have clothes, I would have covering. And here's these other garments that Dorcas made while, while she was still alive. She had such a heart for the poor, the, the downtrodden, and we are so brokenhearted that she's no longer around. Oh, how she showed us Jesus in the way that she cared for the poor as she cared for those who are around her. Oh, she was a wonderful disciple of Jesus Christ. And they are heartbroken. And perhaps if Peter could come, he could do something about it. So, so Peter sends them out. He goes to the upper room and, and Peter does what? He, he kneels down and prays. Because Peter still knows that, that the only hope is the power of Jesus Christ working through. That's the hope of Dorcas. If she's going to be raised up, it's going to take a work of God. And dead raising the life, it doesn't happen every day, right? Peter wasn't going around raising the dead all the time. This is not something we see a lot in Scripture. The Spirit moving upon Peter, like pray, and you could, we don't know how long he prayed. Can you imagine listening into that room? The anguished, the anguish, the earnestness, the intensity, and the, the pleading before the throne of grace. God, would you just raise this one up? Maybe that's a point of application you can stop and say right now. Maybe you're at that point in your life where you're like, I don't know what God, it feels like everything's just dead. Go to the throne of grace with intensity and pleading. To the one who even raises the dead to life, his precious blood has not lost its power. Has not lost its power. So Dorcas is raised up. Tabitha arise, and I imagine Peter's a little bit surprised. I've been to people's bedside as they're dying, and even as they passed, reading scripture over them and I've never seen this, someone raised to life. That would be awesome. I'd be, I'd be on Facebook showing you that. I don't get on Facebook a whole lot. I Facebook, I've never Facebook lived in my life, but I'd Facebook live that for sure. But God's doing something. What's he doing in Peter? He's doing these wonderful things. Bottom of the ninth, two outs, full count, faces loaded down by three, grand slam. God's doing these wonderful things. She sat up, he gave her his hand, raised her up, and the calling the saints and the widows. You can imagine, there had to be a party that broke out. He presented her alive. And it ends the same way. It became known throughout all Joppa, all these Gentile regions, and, and many believed in the Lord. The gospel was going in power, and the gospel was going to all sorts 
of people. And almost as a footnote, point note, so not only is the gospel going in geographically, it's going in power to all sorts of people as these believers are raised to life, but even more so as many are believing in the Lord. There's one more little footnote. It'll be our third and final point this morning. Verse 43. It's going to places, to people, and the gospel. Peter believes in the gospel, but the gospel is going deeper in Peter's heart as well. So to places, to all sorts of people, even into the heart of people, of Peter, excuse me. Verse 43. And Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now again, this is not just a detail in the script so that we know that, we see next week, that Peter's going to see this wonderful vision of this sheet coming down from heaven with the clean and the unclean, who's in, who's out, can the Gentiles be clean without keeping the law, and what place is that? All those things we'll see last week, next week, that's going to happen at the home of Simon the Tanner. And so Luke's just not telling us where Peter's at, where he was staying and where else happened. He is telling us that, but this, I think this is meant to teach us something. He stays with a tanner. He's on the coast. This is not a tanner like a sunbather, right? He's not on the coast and likes to go get a good tan on the coast. That's not what we're talking A tanner is someone who would skin animals. And if you know anything about skinning, I don't know anything about skinning animals. I've never been deer hunt, never cared to skin a deer or anything like that. But it's probably messy. It probably stinks, I would imagine. And so a coastal breeze would probably be nice to clear the air a little bit. Tanners dealing with these dead carcasses all the time, they would be considered unclean people, especially for a Jew like Peter. And so, so the significance of this at the tanner's place was that this was anathema for a Jew. It was highly unpleasant and smelly, and animals were slain there, and tanners were ostracized and had to live 50 cubits outside of town. Now, that was not a problem for Simon because he was, he was, on the, he was far away outside of out of town. But rabbinical law stated that even if a woman was betrothed and discovered that her fiancé was involved in tanning, she could break the engagement. That's how serious they were about this. But Peter had met this tanner. Seems that he loved Jesus. He was willing to associate with him. And so God was at work at, on Peter's heart, I believe, in this moment. But yeah, it's okay for me to stay at a house like one like Simon the Tanner. Because it's not just keeping the law that makes us clean, it's the power of the resurrected Christ. That his precious blood will never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. And Simon's one of them. And no matter how much blood he's touched, no matter how guilt, how unclean he is, Simon's one of us. And I can stay with him. And that's okay. And in fact, that is glorious because the gospel has made him clean because the power of the precious blood of Jesus Christ is still at work among the church. I saw it when the dead were raised. I saw it when the gospel took 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 root. I saw it when the lame walked. And now I'm even seeing with this door that God opened for me to stay here at this Tanner's house. 
Peter's still going to struggle with this in chapter 10. Paul's even going to get mad at Peter later on. He's like, dude, you, you do this when, when we're not around, but when we, you show up, you kind of push the Gentiles aside. So Peter still struggles with this, but God's doing something in his heart. He's showing Peter, and perhaps he's showing you that the gospel goes to all sorts of places. Where will you go? God goes to all, and when he goes to those places, he's going to people in those places. Even people who you might consider unworthy and unclean. What people is he taking you to? And as you do that, how deep is the gospel going in your heart that you love the gospel of Jesus more and more as you see it go farther and farther and deeper and deeper into people who are unclean? Someone like William Cowper might see himself, Cooper might see himself as unclean. The gospel, the saving power, the power of the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient for me. Walls are starting to come down on Peter's heart. The next week in chapter 10, we're going to see those walls start to crumble down as the dividing walls of hostility are made level at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. But for now, let's say this. The people, the Gentiles, they're seeing the compassion of Jesus. They're seeing in the physical realm what's true in the spiritual realm. That the power of Jesus Christ makes the lame walk. They're seeing in the physical realm what's true in the spiritual realm. That the power of Jesus Christ raises dead people to life. The Bible says that. Before Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and God raised us to life in Jesus Christ. The only reason why you're alive and walking today is because the power of the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient, and he brought you into his kingdom. They know the passion of, compassion of Christ, and they know the power of Jesus, that his gospel, his good news goes far. It goes to far-off people and far-off places and goes deep down into the depths of our hearts. They're seeing a picture of the kingdom come that the, the curses of, of sin, the curses, the, 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 the curse of sin is, is being undone. The blessings of Jesus Christ are, are flowing as far as the curse is found, not only with the dead rising and the lame walking, but sinners being saved. They're seeing a powerful display of the power of Jesus in Gentile places and Gentile people. They're seeing that the Lord of life is working in power through his church. They're seeing the kingdom is advancing and the Lord is preparing his church for a massive move of the Spirit in Gentile territory. That's what's about to be unleashed. And may this be true not just to the saints at Lydda or Sharon or Joppa, but may this be true of the saints at Riverside. And may we be a people who go with the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. That he makes the lame walk. He raises the dead to life. And he makes us love him more deeply than we ever imagined. And may we see a work among us even at this hour. Where the curse of this world is bound up by his power. The dead are raised, the lame walk and the sinner saved. Maybe the Lord is bringing to a place like he brought Jonah to Joppa and Peter to Joppa and asking you, where will you go with the gospel? Maybe, maybe he's asking you this morning, will you trust me? 
And maybe you're in a place like Peter. You hit the grand slam and you're feeling pretty good. And would you see what the Lord is doing in your hearts? And maybe it's through tears that you're wondering, what in the world are you doing? God, I don't get it. May you storm the gates of heaven, praying that God would do a work spiritually what he did physically with Dorcas, that he would raise up that person, situation, whatever it might be, knowing that his precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Let's pray.